Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with my co-host and the creator of the show, Tom Jokic. And this is the show where Mr. Tom Jokic digs deep into the archives to come up with amazing interviews that you have never heard. Tom? Christopher, it's so much fun to find these clips and play them for you and the audience for the first time. It's even more fun to chat about them. Right, a couple of uh, what I like to call famous lost nerds um, <laughs> talking about music in a very nerdy fashion, but with enthusiasm because we are both big fans, even if we don't always agree on the artist. <laughs> there, there have been some notable examples of disagreement. And, exactly. And, and that's fine. It doesn't spoil the fun that's at, true. at all. So I want to ask you a question before we of get to the show. Of course you do, <laughs> because that's what you're doing now. <laughs> that's right. What was the first album that you could not listen to enough. Beatlemania. Oh. <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> as soon as that's, those words were coming out of your yeah. it was just a revolution in my life. Right. It just turned everything upside down, and I can't even to this day say exactly why or how, what the alchemy of that record was, but... Uh, I felt bad for my mom for a lot of years. I, she listened to She Loves You so many times. Oh, man. <laughs> did she ever say, shouldn't it be She Loves You? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> she never did. No. <laughs> good she for was, her. She was very tolerant That's of very my musical good. interests. Thank heavens. So I recently listened to the entire Beatles collection. Uh, one Beatles album per day as I took my daily walk. I remember we were talking yes. talk through that, yeah. And um, I had to look up which album Beatlemania was oh. because I found it um, as listed as with the Beatles. But in Canada, I think you're right. I think it was called Beatlemania yeah, in it Canada. Was. Yeah. Um, and I do love that album. But it's funny, the best songs for me are the cover versions. Money, Roll Over Beethoven, and Please Mr. Postman. Those were the ones that stood out for me the most. That album, by the way, also contains what I consider the worst Beatles song, and that is Till There Was You. There were bells <laughs> on a hill, oh. but I never saw them ringing. Oh, right? boy. Oh. <laughs> that always amazed me because of the Liverpudlian accent yes, in it. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm sorry. The, the worst was yet to come, as the expression goes. Maxwell Silverhammer? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Honestly... When people ask, what is one album that doesn't have a bad song on it? I immediately think of Abbey Road, and then I go, oh, no, it's got Maxwell's Silver Hammer on it. <laughs> um, I think for me, the first album that I couldn't get enough of was actually Let It Be by The Beatles, because my brother had that. Oh. But the first album that I bought, I, that I, was I, my... I have a feeling I know where this is going, ladies <laughs> and gentlemen. That's the opening riff of Detroit Rock City, in case anybody's wondering. It was Destroyer by Kiss. And I even brought my Kiss t-shirt here, Christopher. Oh, there it is. Yeah. But that I listened to literally every day in the summer of 1976. And I just loved every second of it. That's what happens when you fall in love with a piece yeah. of music. It doesn't matter how many times you've heard it. It still sounds exciting. It still sounds brand new. And you remember the thrill of the first time you heard it. Yes, that's what, I think that's why we're here, essentially, isn't it? That's true. And it's funny because uh, the album sounded like epic. And more so, it had a very, very grand sound, which was kind of opposite of what their previous albums had sounded like. They were much more simple. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that Bob Ezrin, a Toronto producer, produced that album up in Toronto, by the way. 
And some of my favorite parts, the Ace Frehley lead guitar parts, were not in fact performed by Ace Frehley because he was too ticked off with the band to come to Toronto. So they got Dick Wagner from uh, Alice Cooper's from Alice band, band. Wow. to come up and play those parts. So, But I also know that Peter Chris couldn't really keep time all that well. And, <laughs> and, and so uh, Bob Ezrin had to basically teach him about timing a little bit more. Because wow. some of the music was a little bit more complicated than what they'd played to that point. Well, they can be different skill sets, what yeah. you do on stage versus what you do in the studio, for yeah. sure. Hey, just just backtracking on Let It Be briefly, I'm wondering, with this new um, version of Let It Be, the Peter Jackson filmed version. Get which is back, be, yeah. And I wonder if it's going to bring about a reconsideration of the album itself and its its value and its place in the pantheon. Okay, so let's keep going with the Beatles theme for this episode as we celebrate the release of the Peter Jackson three-part film, Get Back. And Christopher, you and I decided to bring in a third voice to discuss, admire, and argue about the Beatles. Let's call it a Beatle battle. And please welcome our special guest and friend of the show. We've heard from him before from News Talk 1010 in Toronto, Jay Michaels. Yay, Jay! Yeah, Jay, all right. Gentlemen, thank Welcome. you so much for having me. Great to be back. So, Jay, what was the very first Beatles album that you loved, that you fell in love with? Oh, man. Well, for me, because my dad's a musician, I just remember the Beatles always being a part of my life. I just remember right. them always being you know, front and center. If, if I, We lived in a band house for a while. They were always rehearsing Beatles songs. Anytime we're in the car, I remember, I remember hearing the Beatles. But probably with the Beatles is probably the first album I really remember being completely fascinated with the cover black and white artistry and yeah. that's the album that has my my all-time favorite song on it and what's that which is till there was you oh for <laughs> god's sake you're kidding did you hear us at the beginning you know what jay thank you so well, much for the- joining us this week and uh all the best <laughs> yeah it's to been you great <laughs> on behalf of the group and ourselves, you did not pass the audition. Yeah. I'm going to go to the Nickelback podcast instead. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, that's just fantastic. So this episode is going to focus mostly on the latter years of the Beatles, around the time of the Let It Be album and their breakup. And we'll also hear from all four Beatles in subsequent years looking back and dealing with the constant question of whether they would ever reunite. So let's get started. From 1969, the Beatles and the classic Get Back on Famous Lost Words. Tom, the lads are back. Get back, Loretta. Well, as back as they'll ever be. There's a remixed Let It Be, a deluxe 240-page book on the making of that album and the film that followed it in 1970, and a Paul McCartney doorstopper of a book. It is lavish, it is fantastic, it is an informative, and it's called The Lyrics. Oh, all of this activity culminates in the long-awaited six-hour Peter Jackson film, Get Back. So let's celebrate, shall we? We've handpicked, and when I say we, uh, you know I mean Tom, some insightful and significant quotes from all four of the band members. There are a couple of bonus clips, one from the ever-humble little Richard, and in <laughs> one of the most revealing moments in the show, a wonderful chat with producer George Martin. Now, these moments will warm the hearts of any Beatle fan, but they'll also remind you and surprise you and touch anyone whose life was affected by the Fab Four. 
The original film of Let It Be, Long Unavailable, was a controversial examination of the end of the Beatles. The fact that they even allowed it to be released spoke volumes. But now, over 50 years later, we'll get a fresh look at a trove of never-before-seen footage that tells a different story. Here, Paul McCartney talks about the making of the original 1970 documentary, Let It Be. We've done a, a film which is like very different from anything we've done. It, actually, we haven't done it. The film was made around about the time we were making Get Back. They did a film here uh, in Apple, out in Twickenham, all over the place. And it, it's like a documentary, you know, it's like a film, say, of a painter, and he comes in and sets up a canvas puts one brush mark on, then eventually you see him finish the painting. And it's all that he goes through to get to the painting. Well, with us, it's just somebody walk in, twang G and C, and say, this is how the song goes. And then eventually you, you see us finish the record. It's like it's the stages. It's a good film. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. That's Let It Be from 1970 title track from that album. And it's fascinating to hear Paul McCartney talk about a movie that eventually comes out more than 50 years later. This is some kind of a weird time warp. George dissects the film with a little less appreciation. It was a 60mm film, but it was so nice in a way. For Well, it was very informative. It's not really nice for me, I can't stand seeing it, but for other people who don't know what we're really about, who like to go in and see our warts, then it's very good. We were down in Apple rehearsing, and um, the record happened to be the rehearsal of the record, and the film happened to be, rather than a TV show, it happened to be the film of us making the record. So it's very rough in a way, you know, it's nice because, again, you can see our warts, you can hear us talking, you can hear us playing out of tune, and you can hear us coughing and all those things. It's the complete opposite to the sort of clinical approach that we've normally had, you know, studio recording, everything, the balance, everything's just right, and, you know, the silence in between each track. This is really not like that. All we were doing was rehearsing, so in between different numbers, we suddenly go into fat domino tunes or, you know, old rock around the clock and type things, you know, whatever, however we felt at the time. So there's little bits and pieces there's a nice song of Paul's, which is one of those that probably hundreds of people will record, called The Long and Winding Road. That is such a fantastic clip. George mm. doing his best to promote the upcoming Let It Be film, but admitting that while it's great, he personally can't stand it himself. And this was around <laughs> the time when George and Paul got into arguments about George's contribution with his guitar to some of Paul's songs, which you'll hear Ringo talk about in a few minutes. Do you remember that part of the film, Jay? I, I just, you know what, when I, whenever I hear, whenever we talk about them promoting a movie that long ago and we look at the amount of time that's gone by, it's such an incredibly different world that you can't even imagine that there would ever be criticism against George Harrison for anything at this point. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So something just occurred to me. Peter Jackson went back to the film archives to revive the Let It Be era on film. And we do much the same thing going into the archives to the exact same time that he did and playing that audio for you more than 50 years later. And I know for a fact that we have some stuff that Peter Jackson doesn't. <laughs> Still to come on this Beatles special, 
John Lennon describes the last few years with the band, and Paul talks about Yoko. Trust us, you're going to want to hear that. Welcome back to Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward and our special guest, Jay Michaels, as we talk about the latter years of the Beatles. Christopher? The breakup of the Beatles will always be seen as the subtext for the album and film Let It Be, but the story of their demise is many-faceted, and each band member brings a unique view of the same events. In fact, each Beatle will express changing perspectives as time goes by. Here John talks about the final years of the group. Uh, for a couple of years, Paul was the one that was hustling us together and saying, come on, record, you know, we don't, oh, come on, you know, don't feel like it and all that. And, uh, but now I've got something else other than just recording to think about, and that's what made me active. But, because I was really losing interest in just doing the Beatles bit, you know. And I think we all were, but Paul did a good job in holding us together for a few years while we were sort of undecided what to do. Okay, so John is pretty chill about that situation. However, in one of their last meetings as a band, John Lennon let fly with his major grievance, and that was that Paul was writing way too many songs and was eclipsing John. He would show up at a session with five or six songs, and John would have just a few song fragments. He felt so insecure about the power imbalance, and he simply gave up. And the part that ticked him off the most was that he felt that the Beatles were his band. Any thoughts, Jay? Considering that, that John Lennon was always such an incredibly strong presence in the Beatles, and it really was his band, you know, going, going all the way back to the Quarrymen, it, it's amazing that he would ever feel that insecure, but is part of that insecurity the fact that he was finally getting in touch with his feelings with Yoko and he was finally allowing himself to be vulnerable. Part of that ex- exploration of himself manifested itself. Listen to the big words coming out of me. Manifested itself <laughs> into, into him not working as hard, into just living his life a little bit more, not so focused on being a Beatle. Whereas Paul McCartney, you know, he was getting up in the every, he was treating it like a job. Like he would get up every single day and he would work and he would work and he would work. And it wasn't Paul McCartney's fault that he was bringing so much to the table, nor was it John Lennon's fault. And the fact that it became competitive when if they were both in the mood to work on each other's stuff at the time, you know, being young men, it probably would have turned out a lot differently. Yeah, yeah, that's a great perspective. I, mean, I don't think there was a hell of a lot of collaboration going on at that point. Although, interestingly, if you listen to I've Got a Feeling, it's divided almost in the classic Beatles sense of, you know, the A section is McCartney, the B section is Lennon. Very much like, um, say something like, we can work it out. This is a special edition of Famous Lost Words as we talk about the Beatles and celebrate the release of the new film, Get Back. Christopher, keep going. Here, Paul reflects on the elements of the breakup. I mean, people used to always ask the question in American conferences, press conferences, when, what would you do when the bubble bursts? There used to be a guy like yourself who we used to take around him because he was so funny. We used to ask him to ask that question every time. <laughs> and he did it. He came around to every press conference. That was the only question he ever asked on the whole tour. And he just got to be like a court jester kind of thing. And what did you say? Yeah, you know, man, I don't know. We'll, we'll blow up or, I don't know, we'll uh, fall down out the sky or so and so to whatever. But it, never, it was never a serious question to us. Of course, when the bubble did burst... Or the when did it start to... To burst. I don't know, man. Just a couple, about a year before the Beatles broke, I suppose. You could say the seed was sown from very early on. I, I don't know, really. It just did. Friction came in. Business things came in. Relationships between each other. We were all looking for, like, 
people in our lives, like John had found Yoko. It made it very difficult. He wanted a very strong, intimate life with her. At the same time, we'd always reserved the intimacy for the group. So you were starting to find those kind of things were clashing, really. You know, with Yoko, you, you could understand he had to have time with her. But does he have to have that much time with her? You know, was the sort of feeling in the group. And um, so these things just started to create uh, immovable objects and pressures that were just too big. And then after that, after the breakup, then the idea of when will the bubble burst came home. You just suddenly think, oh, that's what that guy was talking about. Every bloody press conference. That's what he meant. So a lot of people point to the death of Brian Epstein as a turning point for the Beatles because it made them responsible for the business side of things instead of just the artistic side. And they really didn't seem to be able to handle both. And yes, Yoko's influence on John, or perhaps more precisely, John's desire to spend more time with Yoko had an effect. But also during the Let It Be sessions, George felt that Yoko, that's George Harrison, felt that Yoko was now allowed more input into the decision-making than he was. And it was during this time that George and John got into a massive fight. Some people say it didn't get physical, but George Martin says it most certainly did. And there was a band meeting where they tried to resolve the issues a few days later. Yoko started speaking on John's behalf, and once again, George Harrison left. I've been, I've been racking my brain trying to think of another situation where a band had someone's girlfriend or someone's wife be a part of the creative process, and I'm, I'm having a hard time coming up with another example of it ever yeah. happening that was ever documented. It just, it just didn't happen. It certainly, yes. you know, it certainly wasn't welcome within the Beatles, nor do I think it would have been welcome with the Hollies, you know, or with the Rolling Stones. Like you didn't hear Anita Pallenberg chiming in on Keith Richards and Mick Jagger stuff. That's right. Also, you know what? You know what it really speaks to? It speaks to Yoko Ono's confidence to be able to talk in a situation like that. Talk about someone that was sure of who she was as an artist. I know she's one of those characters. She's one of those people in music history where there's so much conversation. There's so much noise about who she was and what effect that she had. But that effect was also John's insistence that she be part of the process. And as an artist herself, Yoko was definitely one of a kind. You can hear that on every other track on Double Fantasy, but also there's a couple songs that she did on her own, like Walking on Thin Ice, which she released shortly after John's death, which is an exceptionally great song. You know, the Get Back book, uh, which just came out and has a lot of transcriptions of conversations, some of which were part of the videotaped or filmed part of the, uh, of the documentary and some which were not. There's moments where she's siding with McCartney in terms of, of planning certain aspects of the career, and, and she's very forthright, and she's got great opinions. It's, I think a lot is going to be revealed about her when people have had a chance to see the film. That's great. There is one funny thing where Yoko keeps referring to the band as Beatles, and Paul says, love, it's the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this is a montage that I discovered in our archives that kind of says a whole lot, and it's all about the Beatles' breakup. Let's have a listen to that. It's the end of the Beatles like how people imagine the Beatles. I just want to be able to do what I want to do. And so, you know, at, at this moment, this is what I want to do. I think it's just a good thing for us all. It's like if you've worked together for a long time, it's nice to go away from each other for a while, because then you can appreciate what it's like being together. The only reason we won't be around is we'll be dead. But uh, in, in, as Beatles, you know, we could be around still doing the same thing as we're doing now, only 
with it having developed a bit. But, you know, it'll be a bit embarrassing, you know, at 35. I can see this year us all doing a separate album each. And by that time, people will probably think there's no chance at all of there ever being Beatles again. And then suddenly, there'll be Beatles again. We're obviously not going to go around holding hands forever. <laughs> We've got to split up or progress. As you all know, we're all on our separate little journeys at this time in our lives. And I think it's a very good thing. I think it gives us all a chance to do things that we couldn't do before of all doing our own records and getting rid of a lot of stuff that we all had in our heads that we couldn't get rid of because of working all the time as a group. And I found out what to do and it didn't really have to be with the Beatles. It could have been if they won it. But uh, it got that I couldn't wait for them to make up their mind about peace or whatever, about committing themselves. It's the same as the songs. So I've gone ahead and I'd like them to come along. I'd certainly don't want to see the end of the Beatles and I know um, I'll do anything whatever Paul John Ringo would like to do you know I'll I'll do it I don't see how we can retire you know it's like Bridget Bardo and Greta Garbo and all they try to retire you can't and in London Paul McCartney has filed in a British High Court for a legal and financial split from John Lennon George Harrison and Richard Starkey and from their parent corporation Apple Limited Boy, there's a lot to unpack there. You know, John Lennon first thought of leaving the Beatles in 1966 after the band stopped touring. He felt there was going to be a hole in his life and he needed something to fill it. And of course, they did fill it with a lot of phenomenal studio work once they stopped touring. This is Famous Lost Words, and this is our Beatles special edition. Still to come, Ringo on joining the band and how he really felt about the split. Welcome back to our special Beatles edition of Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic and our special guest, Jay Michaels. We've heard a lot about the influence that the Beatles had on generations of young people, but who influenced them? Little Richard wasn't shy of taking a large amount of credit. Well, when I met the Beatles, they just idolized my style, and uh, they, they was doing all of my stuff. All of my tunes, they was doing. I was like their uh, hero, I was at the time, God forbid, not praising, giving no adoration to Little Richard, but all to God. Uh, uh, the Beatles uh, dug my style so much, and Paul was influenced so much by me. Paul is really the one that was really influenced by me in such a big way. And uh, they said that if it wasn't for me, they would have never been in show business. My music inspired them to get their group together. And I also taught Paul this holler, Woo! I taught Paul that. From 1963, I saw her standing there. There it is. The Little Richard influence on the Beatles. <laughs> that was a sad display on the part of all three of us. I just want to say that. Over the years, we featured a lot of interview clips with John, Paul, and George, but very little Ringo, and that's just wrong. So let's give the yep. drummer his due. Ringo has a charming story of joining the band. Well, I've been playing with groups now since about 1960, you know, just playing with getting money, you know, working. And um, I met the Beatles in Germany when I was there with another group and we used to have to work 12 hours between the two groups, you know, and we got to know each other pretty well. And um, I came, we came, all came back to England and um, their drummer was sick. So they asked me would I sit in, you know, just for a day or so till he got better. 
And I said, yeah. And then um, I did that. And then I went with another group again, you know, and they got him back. And then he was sick again and they came and asked me, you know. So every time he was sick, they just used to come and ask me to sit in, which I used to love it, you know, because they were a much better group than the one I was with. And then we had this job at a holiday camp in England where, you know, you, you play for three months, which is supposed to be the season, but there's never been very much sun. And um, Brian Epstein phoned me up and said, um, would you like to join the Beatles, you know? He said, well, he phoned me up on a Tuesday and said, would you join the Beatles? I said, yeah. He said, well, can you get home tonight? And I said, oh, I can't leave the other group just like that, you know. Must give a bit of notice. So I said, I'll be there Saturday. And then um, I arrived Saturday. We had about two hours rehearsal, and then we played that night, and we've been playing ever since. This was in August 1962. The crazy thing is, is after they fired Pete Best, that's when Ringo said he couldn't join the band right away because he had to fulfill his you know, commitment to Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. So they called Pete Best back and asked him to finish out the next few shows. This is after they fired him. And Pete, being the classy guy that he is, said yes. Doesn't that just <laughs> speak volumes about how classy drummers are? Because Ringo said the exact same thing. You know, I, can't, I can't let my guys down. And Pete stepped in as well. Yeah. Is that because yeah. it's so hard to find a drummer and it's so hard to find someone with a kit that if you if you, if you say that you're going to do some gigs for somebody, you have to fulfill those gigs? Jay, you don't realize how difficult it was for me to find a podcast partner who's also a drummer. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that's a special breed and they are rare. Yes. Some would say uh, happily so, but <laughs> Ringo talks about the split in a very objective way. Uh, George was getting a lot of independence for himself in those days, writing more. He wanted things to go his way where when we first started they basically went john and paul's way you know because they were the writers and they'd say you know this is the song we i would play as creatively as i could and they would say can you do this but sometimes i'd have three people telling me how to do it and i'd play it the only way i could and it seemed to work you know because the three frustrated drummers i used to have in my band or in the band because they all wanted to play drums and i couldn't play guitar so it didn't matter um, and I think that really helped me play in a way because they all and I kept screaming there's two drummers you know they're saying play this like on that track I'm saying for sake there's two drums there they could never hear that you know they just hear some drum thing going on and they, so you'd have to have four arms to do half of the stuff they wanted me to do so I would do it however I could uh, anyway back to George and the other reason I think Paul George was finding his independence and he wouldn't be dominated as much by Paul as he was because uh, Paul would, in the end, wanted to like point out the solo to George. And George said, well, I'm a guitarist, I'll play the solo. And he always did, you know. George left with a big row with Paul, um, because Paul like wanted to point out how to play, because it was his song, you see. I mean, he had sort of a right, but no right at all to do that, you know. To say, I wrote the song. He got a bit like, I wrote the song, I want it this way. Where before it was, I want the song, give me what you can give me, you know, which that's how it was earlier on. So, and also, you know, well, we were all married by then, you know, the family and, and, and everyone wanted to do different things. And I wanted to be in movies and stuff. I don't know. And, you know, as I said, with George writing a lot, so how many songs is he going to get? And then I started writing. I used to have one song, you know, then I wrote two. I would have liked two on, but it would have been a battle, you know, to get two of mine on. Then you, because they, it doesn't matter what I've written today, I still haven't topped Lennon and McCartney. They wrote some 
fine, fine songs. I couldn't put my finger on one thing why we broke up. It was time, and we were spreading out, you know. Well, they were spreading out more than I was. I would have stayed with the band. Ringo covers a lot of ground in that clip, from the early chemistry of the band, to his role as the drummer, to their various reasons for the breakup. That's amazing. You know, when you talk about Ringo's chemistry with the band, a lot of people talk about how the, he became more of like, a, almost like a metronome for the Beatles when he joined. He wasn't as, you know, despite the fact that he's so rock solid, he wasn't as splashy or as messy as other drummers were. And as the years went by, it's amazing to hear other musicians talk about how underrated Ringo Starr was as a drummer. Every great drummer I've yeah. ever heard has said the same thing. But you know who you never heard saying he was underrated was Ringo himself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <That's nice. laughs> exactly right. And you know, we, Christopher, you and I have spoken about this before, but about how unique his drumming was on so many songs, whether it's like She Loves You and that stutter beat that he did, or um, Ticket to Ride. That is so. That is such an unusual beat. And also, of course, uh, Tomorrow Never Knows. Come together is so strange. And how about, just those, uh, how about get back? Get back is fantastic. And those fills he did just in a day in the life. Like there was so much to his repertoire, and he was greatly underrated over the years. And I think that's finally being rectified a little bit. Here, George talks about the return of friendship. The thing that's happened over the years is that we've all mellowed out and we've got a lot of all that business mess sorted out. And we're actually uh, very good friends now, although I haven't seen John Lennon for about two years. But he keeps in touch by tapping on the table and sending postcards. <laughs> uh, but I saw Paul just um, recently quite a lot. You know, he's just in London making his new album. And, uh, you know, we're real good friends again. It's like all that crap that happened has gone you know and it's just very nice to it's almost like um you know just back to where we were at the best of our friendship that's george harrison talking to us in 1979 and it would be about 10 years later that george was insulting paul right to your face christopher and then a few (laughs) years later during the anthology days it was clear that paul and george were still not getting along so jay michaels who's our special guest jay have you ever seen the video of george talking to christopher in the much music days and george taking a shot at paul the video has been viewed probably almost three million times now i'm not exaggerating in the least have you ever seen it I haven't, but the very first thing I, I would I would want to ask is, Christopher, hearing that in the first person, how did you react? Well, you know, I was taken aback, and you can see it all over my face, and I think I said something like, well, now we've got that on record. <laughs> I was astounded. I don't know if you know what he, what he said, but, I mean, briefly, I had just heard prior to doing the interview that McCartney was considering doing an album of other people's songs, including John Lennon's songs like Imagine and Beautiful Boy and so on. George looked at me and said, Paul, oh, doesn't have any good ones of his own then. (laughs) And I was like, oh, well, now we have that on record. He's like, well, it's true. (laughs) It's just classic. So this is a special Beatles edition of Famous Lost Words. And now we're talking about the fifth Beatle. This in some ways is the most insightful, but understated look at the end of the story. It comes from the man who was both at the center of the whole phenomenon and also just removed enough to have some fascinating perspectives. We're talking about George Martin. Reuniting with the three of them for the, uh, for the anthology. That was fun. 
series. Yeah. That was in, that was strange, uh, strange and, and fun. Um, and in fact, you know, I, it took a long time. I worked for about two years off, on and off, on that, and in Abbey Road Studios. And I would go along and delve and listen. And when I got something interesting, I would ring him up, saying, if you're around, come in and I'll play it to you. So Paul would come in, or George might come in. Sometimes all three came in at once. And it was like old times. You know, we would sit there chatting and, and joking. And the, the engineers at Abbey Road Studios wonder what the hell was going on <laughs> because it was old times. You know, mm-hmm. it was uh, great fun. And uh, it, we enjoyed it enormously. But doing that was traumatic in a way because you went through the bad times as well as the good and I would hear myself talking to John and John talking back and and them talking amongst each other you know um, and also listening to tracks I'd quite forgotten some stuff I'd had hadn't even remembered ever writing you know there was one track on it which is called a beginning that I completely forgotten about there we are Hmm. Life's like that. When it takes you back how was it back in the year uh, I guess when did when did it first start to go south with the group. When did you finally say, oh, geez, these guys just aren't... Well, I suppose Brian's death had a bad effect on everyone. Yeah. You know, because that was, that was pretty traumatic. That was in the August 1967. Yeah. And we went, got through a Magical Mystery Tour after that and the White Album. But the White Album was the beginning of their separations. They all wanted to do their own things. Let It Be was the most uncomfortable time. And I thought that Let It Be was the end of everything because they didn't like each other. And uh, they weren't doing good work, and, and John was being very difficult. Um, and he was getting more and more into drugs at that time. And I, I was quite surprised when they, at the end of it, uh, you know, the months went by, and then they said, come back and do it, come, we'd like to make another record. And I, first of all, I refused. I said, no, I'm not going through that again, thank you. Uh, I don't, I, you didn't let me do what I should do. And they said, no, we'd like you to go back to really what you used to do. And so Abbey Road took place. And Abbey Road was everything that... It was going really back to the old days where me being producing in the way I used to. And um, it was a very happy record. Mm-hmm. And it, we, I guess we all knew it was the last one. Wonderful clip from the late Sir George Martin from 1997, I think. To hear more of that interview... Check out episode 117 of Famous Lost Words. Now, as he said in that clip, things were much better during the making of Abbey Road. But get this. At one point, John and Paul did have one major blowout. And John was so angry that he demanded that his songs be on one side of Abbey Road and all of Paul's be on the other. <laughs> can, you, can you imagine what those song fragments would have sounded like without the John songs on Paul's side? Oh, man, that would have been a disaster. No kidding. <laughs> but thankfully, what we got out of it was Abbey Road, the final time they recorded together. Simply a beautiful album. Still much more to come on this Beatles special. Paul talks about playing the Beatles music as a solo artist many years later, and we give the very last word to John Lennon as he talked about the enduring connection between him, George, Ringo, and Paul. (laughs) 
This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward. This week, a special Beatles edition. With me, as always, is Tom Jokic. And joining the party, another Beatles geek, Mr. J. Michaels from News Talk 1010 in Toronto. Man, I thought I was a Beatles geek till I started hanging out with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jay. Now we travel forward to 1991, where Paul is on the radio in Toronto talking about a new concert movie, coincidentally called Get Back. 13 okay. countries, 102 shows, 2.8 million fans, including the largest ever crowd to see a rock show, uh, 184,000 people in Rio de Janeiro, yeah. a lot of records broken, the first tour in 13 years. Why did you decide to, all of a sudden, after all this time had passed, to, to go back out in the road? Or is that an obvious question? Well, no. Um, I, I think the real truth was that during the making of uh, our last album, Flower, well, the last studio album, Flowers in the Dirt, I met the nucleus of the band. You know, I met, uh, started working with Hamish and um, a couple of the guys. And we just started messing around and it felt so good. I thought, okay, this is, we've got the makings of a band here. You know, maybe we just ought to take it a little bit further. Maybe mm-hmm. we ought to think of going out on the road. And it just growed and growed and growed, you know. So we ended up with a world tour, and um, we had a ball. Great. So you're not going to make us wait 13 years for the next one, are you? No, I don't think so. I'm, we're actually thinking about maybe getting out next year. Mm-hmm. But um, I've got an album to make in the meantime, you okay. know, the next, the next band album. I'd like to make that album. Then if that works out... Mm-hmm. Maybe just take it on the road again. Well, when I, I went and saw the Skydome show, and I just got into my seat when the lights went down, and uh, on came this amazing video presentation. And uh, I guess this was, in fact, a prelude to making the actual concert movie, because the guy who put the video together and subsequently the movie, uh, Get Back, is the same guy who made your first movie, Hard Day's Night, which is the first movie I ever went to see in a theater. So was it? It was. Uh, How old were you then? I would have been uh, seven. Ah! And I, I, my brother took me, and I'm in the theater, and it's packed with uh, teenage girls, yeah. and they Couldn't were like, they were crying, and uh, it's what an impression on well, a seven year old. I wish I had been about twelve or thirteen; yes. I probably would have understood it more. This yeah. is true. Yeah. Uh, did you uh, help in selecting the final material for the movie? Because 150 hours of footage, and you had to get it down to 95 minutes. Did you take um, part in that for for the Get Back movie? Mm-hmm. Um, I helped, you know, but it wasn't my final decision. Um, in fact, the director did that. Mm-hmm. It's one of the good things about this movie. You know, we, we got hold of Dick Lester, Richard Lester, as you say, who'd done the first Beatles movie, and um, said to him, you know, would you like to direct this movie? And he said, yeah. So having, having got him as a director, there didn't seem any point in saying to him, okay, now we're going to tell you how to make a film. Mm-hmm. You know, once you've got a director, you've got to let him, he's the captain of the ship, and mm-hmm. you, you ought to let him at least have a go, you know. So that's what we did, and this is actually his selection okay. from the whole tour. We, we told him actually which we liked best, but in actual fact, in the end, he told us which ones he liked best visually. Right. So I kept saying, okay, well, this is a film, because the guys in the band were saying, but that's not the best take. Mm-hmm. We've got a better take from Philadelphia or somewhere. I'd say, yeah, but he's got the pictures. Too many things to from, take into consideration. From, from that show. Mm-hmm. So we actually had to take, uh, accept some sort of bond notes and some takes that we didn't really like. Mm-hmm. But he said, you know, he said, let me do this. He said, it'll seem to the audience, it'll, it'll be, come over to the audience that it's genuine that it's, it's live, that you see the little mistakes. He said, let me leave the mistakes in, you mm-hmm. know, and let me, let me show you what I think will make a good movie. So we did. 
and that's how it worked out. So it's basically his decision. Have you had a f uh, chance to see the finished product? Yeah, saw it last night for the first time. I've, I've been seeing, you know, bits from it. I've been working with the director and doing this and mm -hmm. that, but I've never actually seen it with an audience mm -hmm. in a real cinema. And so last night in New York premiere was the first time. And we were actually planning to sort of get out a little bit early and just sort of go off, but it hooked us. We just stayed the whole time and we had a ball, actually. Did it yeah. turn out uh, the way you thought it would? Um... Yeah, well, you know, I didn't. I wasn't quite sure what to expect. Mm -hmm. uh, I should say we let him get on with it. We we offered a few suggestions, most of which he turned down. <laughs> okay. But again, you know, I said, well, he's the director, you know, let's see what he can do. So uh, we, we were all very pleased with it last night. Actually, we came out of this and said, hey, it's a good movie, man. You know. It's a great movie. Yeah, we were pleased. Looking forward to the Toronto premiere tonight. Okay, so let's get this straight. The movie that became Let It Be in 1970 was originally going to be called Get Back. And then Paul's 1991 concert film, which he was just talking about there, was called Get Back. And now the brand new Peter Jackson Disney Plus series is called Get Back. Okay, I think that's pretty clear. I think all we're missing at this point is, is Doc and Marty in a DeLorean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great stuff. Here Paul talks about returning to Liverpool and an emotional tribute to John. You still have fans fainting at your concerts. uh -huh. So let me let me get this straight. You've probably had uh, well, women faint, and then probably their daughters faint, and probably their granddaughters faint. So you've had like three generations <laughs> of people minute, fainting on stage. Oh, it's terrible, isn't it? No, they. I mean, fainting was really the, the the Beatles thing. You know, you don't really get much of that now. I must admit, what? but. Um, you I know. saw them cart away a couple of people yeah. at the Sky Dome. It's just the heat. It's the heat. <laughs> it was the heat. It's just the heat. Uh, what would uh, to go back to the tour? It, Talk, let's talk about Liverpool for a second. Yeah, and, and uh, that sure. must have been kind of. I know it was emotional for me to go to this, this show in Toronto, but for you to go back and and start performing some of the uh, the classic Beatles songs that hadn't been done for seventeen years or whatever. Yeah, it was great actually because um, we weren't going to go to Liverpool. I talked to the promoters and thing uh, when we were arranging the tour. And um, he said, well, you know, there's only a small show there. He said, we won't be able to, it's a bit big. We've got the big show now. We can't take it to Liverpool. We eventually found a place on the banks of the Mersey, mm -hmm. which was a kind of car park almost, you know, and we, we, we made a gig there. It was open air. And um, it was great. The weather was great. You know, open air, you're always praying for a mm -hmm. bit of good weather. You could see it coming in off the Irish Sea kind of thing over the Mersey. And it was beautiful. It was going to be great. And then the fans came in and they were sensational. Mm -hmm. And um, well, towards the end of the show, we did a little tribute to John. I figured, you know, being in Liverpool, this, this would be nice to do, a nice moment to do it. Um, and we sang, we ended up singing Give Peace a Chance. And uh, we finished it. Give peace a chance. Da -dum -da -dum -dum -dum. Hoy. And the crowd was still going, Oh, we are saying. So we had to start up again, you know. It was quite an emotional moment. They just mm -hmm. wouldn't let us stop the chant. Yeah. You know, they just kept singing like a football crowd. How, how long did that, that go on for? It went on, you know, a good few minutes after we'd, we'd finished it. It was kind of, you know, it doubled up the length of the song. Mm -hmm. But um, it was great. It was great, you know the emo the emotion, the depth of emotion with with the Liverpool people, you know, hearing that song and right. with John and the memories and stuff. So it was a brilliant night. Paul McCartney, thank you to uh, thanks for coming by and uh, sharing some time with us uh, here in Toronto. Thanks for having me, and uh, good luck with the uh, the movie. Thank you, sir. We'll see you tonight at the theater. Yeah. Okay. And let's wrap it up with a song. Uh, how about uh, How about birthday? Okay. Let me just say goodbye to you, listeners here. Hey, folks in Toronto and the environment. Uh, Love you, keep rocking, and uh, they say it's your birthday. 
That's the great Paul McCartney in conversation with Dan Michaels on 1050 Chum in Toronto in 1991. And you know, Paul never fails to deliver. He always seems to be in good spirits, and he's willing to talk about whatever you want. And by the way, this is the night that I met Paul very briefly, and he signed my copy of Sgt. Pepper. But uh, Christopher, tell us about the time that you met Paul. It was the uh, rehearsal for the Flowers in the Dirt tour in 1989, and they flew me to London for, for that interview. And it was at a giant uh, BBC uh, structure called the Elstree Studios, about the size of an airplane hangar. And, me, and together with my camera person and one journalist, Nick Jennings from McLean's, um, we saw an entire Paul McCartney show, top to bottom, lights, full production, and all the jokes as well. And afterwards, I interviewed him, and he is, just as you said, he's always on. He's yeah. like, he's the salesman, he's the jokester, he's doing the funny voices and stuff. You get nothing less than 100% every time from McCartney. So we've determined now that you've met both Paul McCartney and George Harrison. Now, you never did meet John or Ringo, is that correct? That is correct, sir. Okay. And Jay, how about you? Have you met a Beatle? I saw Ringo Starr at Casino Rama with the All-Star Band. Does that count? That yeah. counts, yes. What do you remember about that show, Jay? The show that I saw was John Waite from The Babies, yeah. Colin Hay from Men at Work, and yeah. the incredible, incredible Sheila Eve doing percussion. That's great. Now we jump back to 1974 with John Lennon in conversation with John Donaby. In this clip, John takes on the reunion question with dignity. Do you feel, John, that you're, you're bothered as much on the streets as a John Lennon solo performer as opposed to the days of the Beatles? Oh, it's never like, it, it'll never be the same again, and once is enough, thank you very much. Yes. <laughs> uh, as being a Beatle and all that, you know, we, we couldn't even go to the movies or go out to dinner, right? We spend our lives indoors. Yeah. But now I, get, I love it, you know? I mean, people just say hi or, you know, what's cooking or something, and a few people ask for autographs, but mainly they just sort of, wave or shake your hand and I get about and I go to eat and I'm enjoying all the things I couldn't do for 10 years, you know. Is Julian ever bothered, uh, John, because of having a, a obviously a very famous father? Well, because he doesn't know anything different, you see. Ah. You know, I mean, what, if you are the son of, I guess you're lumbered with it, you know. Certainly. He's very uh, normal in, in the nicest sense of the word. And I think that's probably due to his mother who's sort of, you know, put it, we, we made sure he went and ordinary schools, you know, uh -huh. and mixed with ordinary kids. So I think you'll survive it as well as you can survive being the son of Dracula or whatever. John, just finally, um, and I, 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 my personal feeling is I, I hate to ask the question, but I guess for the listeners, uh, sure. Beatles reunion, everybody's talking about it. And I, yeah, I, I wonder when you're going to get to that one. Try mm. answering that question anyway. Listen, uh, uh, with all this immigration business, I mean, the others were getting a bit of a problem too, you know, Paul and George had quite a problem getting in sometimes. Mm -hmm. The four of us haven't even sat in a room together for four years. Now, I've seen Ringo, I've seen Ringo and Paul together. I've seen Paul separately, and I've seen George separately, but many have spoke to him on the phone. So if you can imagine those circumstances, we don't really have a chance to discuss anything like that. Right. Anything's possible, but it's a, as I said in the Ray Coleman article, if you say it's possible, it comes out that yes, they're going to get together. If you say no, it sounds like a negative and they can't stand each other. So anything's possible and we all get on fine and you never know, you know, and we, we just haven't had time to get around to that kind of stuff. 
There's John Lennon in conversation with legendary Canadian broadcaster John Donaby. You can hear that whole interview on a very special edition that we did on December 8th, 2020, in honor of the 40th anniversary of John's passing. Great stuff. That's John Lennon and John Donaby on Famous Lost Words. So guys, I have the songwriter question for a Beatles fan, and that is, over time, how have the reputations of the three main writers in the Beatles either diminished or grown? Wow, that's cool. such a great question. And you know, I, when, you, when you posed it, the very first thing I thought of, oddly enough, was Kurt Cobain and Dave Grohl. Because we, mm. we look back at Kurt Cobain's catalog, and it just seems to grow with mystique year after year. And Dave Grohl, I would say, is arguably Paul McCartney, where he just can't have a down moment. He's either recording with Eagles of Death Metal, or he's recording, you know, for a documentary, or he's, you know, he's producing other artists and stuff like that. So you wonder if by pure volume of material, your work actually diminishes. Mm. Yeah, I've had that thought in my darkest hour. <laughs> like looking at George Harrison, for example, I mean, I think anyone, well, I shouldn't say anyone, but a lot of people would have rated him as number three among the three Beatles songwriters during the life of the band. But I'm wondering if that changed, you know, when you started to compare um, Harrison's solo work with that of McCartney and Lennon. Yeah, I wonder if that's true. I, I think that George will always kind of come third if you're going to rate him against Lennon McCartney. But I also think that George's stock and respect and and how he's revered as a songwriter has grown a lot. And the most downloaded Beatles song is not anything that McCartney wrote or anything that Lennon wrote. It's Here Comes the Sun. And so that's the one that is the top of the list. Anytime you see a a Beatles list of downloaded songs are just based on popularity. I mean, it's weird to think that a song like Isn't It a Pity, he was offering to the Beatles as far back as Revolver, and they didn't record it. Wow. And, yeah. And then when they finally did record songs of his, um, say, for example, on Let It Be, they chose For You Blue. Oof. When they could have chosen All <laughs> Things Must Pass. It's, yeah. it's bizarre. Absolutely. Okay, I have a question for you guys. So, if the Beatles had stayed together a good five, seven years longer, how would the songs that they recorded solo sound if the band had played them together? So I'm thinking of My Sweet Lord, Live and Let Die, Imagine, Band on the Run, Photograph by Ringo, which was written by George, Instant Karma, and Ebony and Ivory? <laughs> no! <laughs> I'm sorry. Wow. You know, I, th I think the easy answer is that those songs would all sound like Beatles songs. And there would yeah. probably have been just as many fights as there was during previous Beatles recording <laughs> sessions for, for stewardship over, over a certain song. Because you look right. at, you know, Band on the Run or Live and Let Die, and they're just, they're almost orchestral. And you look at Lennon's solo stuff, and it's very, you know, it's very four on the floor. It's very, you know, first takes a great take. Yeah. And you look at the Ringo stuff and it's, it's almost, I, you know, I don't want to use the word because it sounds so disparaging, but it's almost novelty. Yeah. Jay, I think, Jay, you nailed it. They would all sound like Beatles songs. I think that's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. Um, I don't think they would sound better than the versions that we know from the solo records. They would just sound different. Yeah. And we would hear the influence of guys playing together for all those years. It's like the yeah. movie that, that came out recently. I think it was yesterday where there was a world without the Beatles. Yes. Right. This would, this would be a world with the Beatles, and we would not know the alternate reality that was the Beatles because they stayed together. 
It's very trippy. It's very Black Mirror. (laughs) (laughs) Right on. So, guys, I want to ask you, have both of you seen the movie Yesterday? Yeah. No. Oh, okay. Oh, Christopher, you have have to watch it, Christopher. It's great. Okay. Okay, I will. Okay, well, then I won't talk about the point in the movie where I literally gasped out loud and everybody in the theater looked at me at the same time. Uh, and, I, and Jay, I'm sure you know when that moment was, when the door opens in the cottage. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yes. It's just, it's mind-boggling because it's kind of one of those what-if uh, scenarios. Anyway, I won't go any further, but it's an amazing moment in an otherwise pretty good movie. Just my thought. Tell me, guys, do you think that the Beatles are still relevant to a young audience? Wow. Yeah, I, I think I think they are, and you know, I've I've brought up Dave Grohl's name before, but Dave talks about when Paul McCartney came to visit, and he ran around his house and had to take down all the Beatles memorabilia because he was embarrassed that he had so much stuff. But he also talks about you know his daughter <laughs> learning how to play guitar and drums and, and learning about songs and music through the Beatles. So that's you know that's a couple of generations ago. It almost feels like they could be an influence on every generation, but not necessarily because oh my God, you have to appreciate the Beatles for the for the being the biggest band of all time. But you can just hear the Beatles as a five-year-old and love Octopus's Garden. It doesn't have to be about significance. It just has to be about the beauty of music. Yeah, good answer. I think uh, there's going to be phases where they're just not cool. It's where I think it's inevitable that people are just going to be overloaded. And we may be heading into one of those phases right now because there's so much sort of new stuff with the Beatles, which makes me wonder how much more there can possibly be. Right. I mean, I have the experience of my daughter uh, when my wife went away for the first time and left me with my daughter. Um, she was two, and I'd seen enough Madeline videos for a lifetime, so I just brought out my <laughs> copy of Help, and she fell in love. And we had to watch that movie every day for three months. She knew the dialogue, <laughs> she knew the song, she could sing every word, and, and has been a fan ever since. And that became Christopher's battle cry after a while. Help! (laughs) (laughs) But you know, Christopher, I think you make a great point. And part of that is the generation that we are as people who essentially heard the Beatles when they were around originally, talking to our kids and playing those songs for our kids. That's, That's what I think brings it to that next generation. And so at some point... There's going to be a generation that won't remember them with such reverence unless parents keep talking to their children or older siblings keep talking to their younger siblings about those great Beatles songs and playing them for them, and that will continue the ball rolling. Uh, I just hope that happens for a very long time uh, because they are so incredibly unique and influential. So, guys, with that in mind, what three songs would you play for someone who knew nothing about the Beatles to turn them into a Beatles fan. Why do I feel like Christopher's ready to go on this one? (laughs) (laughs) Well, but I tried to think of something. I I sort of took a turn on this thing because I started to think, well, do these three songs have to be representative of the entire output of the Beatles? And then it becomes a bigger challenge. Oh, yeah. And I'm ready for that challenge. Okay. <laughs> I just want to say. All right, there we go. So the first one would be She Loves You. Yeah. The second one would be Day in the Life. Oh. And the third one would be Something. Oh, wow. 
a silence fell over the pod. <laughs> no, that's really good. So you've got a John, a Paul, and a George song in there. Uh, and, um, of course, you would never choose Maxwell Silverhammer, which is your least favorite uh, <laughs> Beatles song. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, if, if it came down to one song, for me it would be A Day in the Life, for sure. But my three are a little bit different. My three are I Feel Fine, because it's it represents the pop side of the Beatles, but also kind of the rock inside, and also that feedback off the top is just mind blowing. Then to get into the world of John, I would probably choose I Am the Walrus, because of all the psychedelic stuff that he did, that I think works best. I think it's cohesive enough to be listenable, and it's wild enough that you can climb into that song. And then for a Paul song to finish things off, I would probably choose Let It Be, just because it's so beautiful, it's so spiritual, it's meaningful, it's a little bit um, hard to reckon with what it means, and then in some ways it's very obvious what it means. So those are my three. Nice. Jay, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that Till There Was You is, is in your back pocket there, buddy. Uh, Till There Was You is going to be my second choice for sure. Um, and that's the song. That's a song for me because it's, it's a song that I can play anytime, anywhere, and it immediately elevates my mood. It's just one of those songs that raises the hair on my arms. And I've, I've, I've listened to it a million times. I could listen to it a million more. So I'll put that one in the middle. But if I'm going to go number one, I'm going to do an ode to the Hamburg days. And it really, because I think he recorded it twice before his, his vocal cords were just completely shredded. And that's mm. Lennon on rock and roll music. Oh, yeah. It's just such, it's just such a screamer. And man, to, to, pick, the, to pick a third one, oh, it's, it's, it's a tough one. Um, I always go back and forth because I'm a Paul guy. I'm a melody guy. I really love you know, so much of what he did. But um, I might go with Michelle. Or Norwegian Wood. So Michelle for Paul and Norwegian Wood for John. Yeah. But you know what the alternate answer to that, guys, is? Honest <laughs> to God, take an, al- take an album and drop a needle down. Yeah. yeah. And, you, and put, three songs, put three songs in a row, and I'm going to love, I think anybody would say, well, that's pretty good. Yeah, exactly right. As long as Maxwell Silverhammer's not in there, I'm, I'm down with that. <laughs> <laughs> that was a song I remember listening to as a really little kid because it had a story to it. and It, al- it almost felt naughty. Right? Yeah. Because <laughs> it's about murder. <laughs> that does it for our special Beatles edition of Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. Special thanks to Jay Michaels for joining in the fun today. Jay, great to have you. Thank you so much, guys. And personally, I can't wait for the adaptation of our podcast in Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> Who's going to stage at like Jerk de Soleil? Like, what would happen? How would that be? (laughs) So if you enjoyed the show, but want to hear even more, don't forget to listen to all the past episodes of Famous Lost Words on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. The executive producer of the show is Sarah Cummings. The theme music is by Christopher Ward and Rob Wells. Talk to you next time on Famous Lost Words. (laughs) 